Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our revealed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we observe the Epiphany of our Lord, a feast which follows the twelve days of Christmas and begins the season between Christmas and Lent. Epiphany's actual date is always January the 6th. As most of you know, the word epiphany means a revelation of something previously unknown or a discovery of sorts. The word itself comes from two Greek words. The first is epi, which among other things can convey meanings of upon or outward, as in epidermis, your outermost layer of skin. The second word is phanine, which means to show. An epiphany, then, is that which becomes outwardly known, the once hidden becoming visible, the previously unknown becoming known. In that regard, then, we could say that a very large part of the Holy Scriptures brings us epiphanies of one sort or another. On many occasions, the prophets and the apostles have made God's previously hidden will known to His people and to the world. Those whom the Lord chooses to receive an understanding of His will also receive the blessing of His truth. They are given the opportunity and the inspiration to repent of their sins. They are granted His gifts and His salvation. The lessons we heard this morning from the prophet Isaiah, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and from Matthew's Gospel account all speak of epiphanies. They are the readings that the church has used for centuries at Epiphany. These readings tell of people being brought from darkness to light, from mystery to understanding, from ignorance to knowledge. The reading of the account of the wise men's visit conveys the truth that Jesus is a Savior for all nations, and that His coming was not only revealed to His own people through the Scriptures, but to those far and wide as well. Now, just how the wise men came to know of this connection between the appearance of the miraculous star and the birth of the King of the Jews is a matter of much debate. Some speculate that these wise men had access to the Old Testament writings by way of Jews who had been exiled in Babylon centuries before. Others suggest that a special revelation was given to them, perhaps by an angelic visit such as was experienced by Mary and Joseph prior to Jesus' birth. After all, these same wise men did receive a special message from God later in a dream, telling them not to return to Herod. Regardless of just how they came to know of the Christ incarnation and activity, though, the wise men's visit and their gifts provided fulfillment of God's prophecies. It also gave further revelation of the Messiah's coming to His people. Among the prophecies fulfilled by the visit of the wise men, was that which we heard from Isaiah, that gold and frankincense would be brought to God's chosen one. These, along with myrrh, are explicitly spoken of as being the gifts brought by the wise men and offered to the Christ child. Still, we must be careful not to extend or extrapolate this fulfillment beyond what Scripture tells us. For example, the popular Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are, presumes that because there were three gifts mentioned in Matthew 2, there must have been three visitors. Early tradition even assigned these visitors names. 
It also assumes that the visitors were kings, perhaps because kings are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 60 as being among those who would be drawn to the Savior. Christmas cards too often depict the wise men as riding on camels, perhaps for the same reason that camels are mentioned in Isaiah. Yet none of these widely accepted details about the wise men is mentioned in Matthew's account. Now don't get me wrong, it's it's certainly not harmful to sing We Three Kings, nor to send Christmas cards showing the three wise men riding on camels. Far from it. Such things actually help to remind us and connect us and to others to the birth of Christ, to God's only begotten Son, and that's never a bad thing. But we do need to guard against letting such traditions or assumption become matters of belief if the Bible is silent on them. What's important is not the number of wise men or their possible royal status or the transportation that they used, but the fact that God did use them. He used them to reveal His coming salvation and His glory to the world. In most cases, revelation of the truth is a good thing. There are some instances, though, where keeping certain things confidential, even if they are true, is appropriate and even helpful. Matters of national defense, for example. Also, there are ages at which children are ill-equipped emotionally to know all of the details about certain topics or certain aspects of the family history. And reasonable privacy is certainly an important component of the freedoms that we enjoy as citizens, too. Overall, though, we are a curious people. And we seek to find truths and to know truths and to have the truth revealed to us. The media and various inquiry boards and congressional committees often ask, what did he know and when did he know it? Such revelations about people and events are the basis of accountability. We should be glad when abuses of privilege or the public trust come to light and when those who are responsible have to face the consequences. But it's a whole other story, isn't it, when it comes to revelations about ourselves. We're all guilty of hypocrisy when too much is revealed and becomes known about us. The fact is, if we were all subject to the same level of scrutiny as those in certain professions or those who have a certain degree of celebrity are, we wouldn't really like some of the things that might be revealed about us either. Today you've already heard that we as a congregation are embarking on an effort to become more biblically informed and more spiritually led stewards of the financial resources that God has given each of us. In part, this program is necessary on account of the truths that have been revealed about us as a parish family. Over the past several years, we as a community in Christ have struggled financially. Now that's no new revelation to most of you, but it's still a potentially uncomfortable truth. What's also true is that the congregational leaders have repeatedly had to appeal to you year after year to dig deeper at crucial times to come up with money to try and close recurring budget deficits. That reveals a lot about us too. It means that many of us within our parish family have a very wrong-headed understanding of Christian giving. It means we think that giving is something that we have to do in order to catch up or to meet a budget. 
not something that we are, as good stewards are privileged to do out of the abundance of blessings that the Lord has given us. We also don't often connect Christian giving with God's blessings of being able to work in a profession, whether it's modest or whether it's lucrative. We don't see it as an aspect of living pretty comfortably in a nation of opportunity or of retiring with a, an income that far exceeds what most of the world still receives as pay for their active work life, even while working at dangerous or backbreaking tasks. Another revelation about our congregation came to light last summer as we were preparing for the cottage meetings that many of you attended. It became all too clear that for the vast majority of the St. Paul congregation, proportional, consistent, and first-fruits giving is not a priority. Ten percent of our St. Paul households make no contribution to the church at all. Another third of the households, that is, 110 families, give less than $10 a week. Half of the households, all lumped together, contribute less than 4% of our total offerings. Now I know with certainty that our congregational demographics and the spread from the highest earners here to the lowest earners here are not as dramatic as that. What that really means is two things. First, we have a lot of people at St. Paul who have their financial priorities screwed up. Second, it also means that I, as your pastor, have been woefully inadequate and highly ineffective in teaching you and encouraging you to be cheerful and generous givers. But I can only teach and encourage. I cannot force. I cannot threaten. I cannot demand. I cannot say, if you, Mr. and Mrs. X, don't at least give this much to the congregation each year, you're out. Nor can I say, if your giving doesn't increase, you won't have salvation. Some churches essentially do that, you know. They'll make you show them your pay stub or your tax return and then tell you what it is you must give. They demand tithing as a condition of membership. They tell you that if you aren't giving in a certain way or in a certain amount, it shows that you are not a genuine believer. And you know what? Some of those churches are the ones that have pastors wearing $5,000 suits and $10,000 watches. Those are the congregations with the 20,000-seat arenas. They have their own TV networks and a helicopter to take the pastor from his 22-room mansion to that arena and back again. And they're the churches that are sending thousands and thousands of people down the pathway to hell. But I still have to wonder, how many people here at St. Paul, even though they hear the purely proclaimed word and receive the properly administered sacraments to the best of my ability and Pastor Knuckles' ability, are actually harming themselves spiritually because they are unrepentant about being meager, selfish, reluctant givers? Now, I'm sure that such words today are likely to cause a whole variety of reactions among you. I know this because for a whole lot of years, I was sitting out there in the pews like you are. I was on the other side of the pulpit listening. I know what it means to get laid off, not just once, but multiple times. I know what it means to juggle bills and to have to carefully time the mailing of the payments because they all add up to more than what's in the checking account. I know what it means to have a five-figure credit card balance. 
On the other hand, I also know what it means to work hard to get into the top echelons of an organization and to have a very comfortable six-figure income and then have Satan sit on my shoulder and whisper in my ear saying, all this is yours. You earned it. You deserve it. Enjoy it all. Live it up. Spend it on yourself. Hoard it for yourself. Let somebody else take care of all those needs at church. Yes, I can anticipate some of the reactions because I've had some of the same ones when I've heard and I've read what Scripture reveals about God, what it reveals about us, and what it reveals about giving. Now, some of you will rightly think, Pastor, I'm already tithing. I'm already setting aside my church offering before everything else, before mortgage and rent, before utilities, before food and clothing and car and vacation, before my other charitable giving, even before income taxes and Social Security. That's wonderful, particularly if you're doing it because you've been led to do it out of a grateful and spirit-filled heart, not out of guilt or browbeating. Others are thinking, how can he expect me to give more to the church or to give anything to the church? We're barely making ends meet as it is. Quite possibly true, and if so, then I hope and pray that your financial struggles will not lead you to despair, nor give you unnecessary guilt about your lack of giving. But on the other hand, it's also quite possible that you've set those two ends a little too far apart. Maybe you've bought into a false dream or false expectations, and you're more concerned about what your friends and neighbors think of you than what God gives you and God teaches you. If over half of our households give less than $10 a week, what percentage of their incomes is that? Still others are thinking, are thinking I'm sure, all the pastor and the church want from me is my money. Really? Are you that cynical? Are you that poorly informed? Don't you realize that every single person on this church's and school's staff is both fully capable and motivated enough to hold a far better paying job in the public or the private sector if money was his or her concern? Get over yourselves. Your pastors don't want you to give because we need money or we worry about money more than you do. I think the fact that our giving to St. Paul is more than that of 142 families combined proves that we worry about it less. What we want, not from you, but for you, is your faithfulness. Not faithfulness to us, mind you, because we are every bit as sinful and hypocritical and undeserving of God's gifts as you are. We want your faithfulness to God. And we want your trust to be in the many revelations of His gifts and promises that He's put in His Word to those many epiphanies, great and small. And we want God's kingdom to be proclaimed both now and into the future until Christ comes again, both here at St. Paul and throughout the world. Giving is not about what it does for the pastors and staff because Lutheran pastors and teachers and other church workers aren't in it for the money. Giving isn't about what it does for Christ's church either because it will prevail even against the gates of hell and certainly against you being a cheapskate. And most certainly, giving is not about what it does for God because He is already the creator and the master of all things, including your job 
and your bills and your bank account. He could snap all of it away from you in an instant if he wishes. No, giving is about what giving does for you and what it reveals about you. Godly giving is not about moving money from your pocket to the church's offering plate. It's about moving hearts. Now, maybe those ideas will be an epiphany for some. For the next three Sundays, there will be special Bible studies planned during the Sunday school hour on being a consecrated steward. I hope that you will choose to participate in these and in the other consecrated stewards' events and activities. And I pray that these activities will all lead us, all of us, to a better understanding of what it means to be God's holy and consecrated people, and therefore what it means to be a consecrated steward of all that He has given us, physically and spiritually, earthly and heavenly, temporally and eternally. Our financial resources are really only one small portion of His gifts, and in the scheme of His kingdom, they are a rather insignificant one. Far more important are the lasting gifts that are ours on account of Him who is revealed to the wise men and whose coming troubled Herod in all Jerusalem. Jesus, the Christ, the babe born of Bethlehem. Contrast, if you dare, the responses of the wise men and of Herod to the birth of Him who would atone for their sins. The wise men fell at His feet They worshipped Him, and they offered Him their precious gifts out of what God had provided them. Herod, on the other hand, thought that Jesus was a threat to his enjoyment of earthly things, so he rejected the Messiah and sought to take that child's life. The lesson is clear. Those who are grateful for God's blessings are led to praise Him and to thank Him. Those for whom His gifts mean little or nothing, or whose priorities would be upset, They simply take and take and take some more. In the end, in the final epiphany, all will be revealed to us about God. And everything about us will be be revealed as well, both the good and the bad. Indeed, nothing is unknown to God even now. He sees into our hearts. He knows our fears, our joys, our hopes. He knows when we trust Him and He knows when we don't. But most importantly, He knows our frailty. He knows all of our temptations, including the reluctance to generously part with the earthly blessings that He has so lavishly bestowed upon us. He loves His whole creation, but He loves nothing in it any more than He loves us. And so we we receive the greatest heavenly gift of all. The Son was given to us out of that love so that by His righteous death for our sins of selfishness, our sins of greed, our sins of fear, all might be overcome. On His account, we live free of the fear of death. We live free of the fear of the condemnation of the law. We live free to receive His forgiveness, His promises, His peace. We are granted priceless gifts. His adoption at the font his reconciliation by the Word, His forgiveness and His nourishment and His strength at His altar. May His gift of the Spirit likewise always give you the comfort and the assurance that leads to a life of joyful service and joyful sharing. In His holy and precious name, Amen.